uh, our progressive change into the likeness of Jesus is not a complicated thing. Uh, it's not something that we each need to figure out on our own. Uh, but it's also not something that, in one way, we can do. We cannot grow ourselves. Uh, but we can and will, by God's grace, avail ourselves of these common means which God has revealed that He grows us in. The Word, prayer, and fellowship. So this morning is our examination of the third of those, fellowship. And uh, as Pastor Matt mentioned, there are, there are four different times, six if you count uh, a related word, six different times that Paul uses fellowship in the book of Philippians, and he kind of develops it as a whole. Um, if I could actually use the screen as well, guys, I'll use that. Um, that he develops it throughout the whole book. So the question for us at the onset is, what does this word mean? Now, uh, our, in common usage today, it's, it's quite a Christianese term, isn't it? We use fellowship all the time. You know, you're all invited to the fellowship dinner next Sunday, that sort of a thing. Uh, let's get together for some fellowship. Hey, I really enjoyed the fellowship tonight. Um, how about maybe we have the teens over for some games and fellowship? Uh, that was a good time of fellowship, right? We say this all the time. It's, it's quite quick to the, t to the tongue of a Christian. And, and at least in American Christianese, as with what I have grown up with, it, it means essentially a get-together of Christian family and friends. That's how we most commonly use it. I think as we come full circle to this at the end of the sermon, we'll see that, that that's not an inappropriate usage by any means, but it's also a relatively small slice of the complete intended meaning, and we might reduce the meaning of fellowship a little bit by using it exclusively in that way. Um, so the question remains for us then, if that's what we normally have it to mean, what does it mean in the New Testament? There's about 40 times that it's used in the New Testament, this word koinonia, which is fellowship, and this, these are, this is uh, an image essentially of what we would call the semantic range of the word. So there's these ways in which the New Testament authors engage this word fellowship. Um, and this is from least common to most common. That's slightly deceptive because the first definition to take part or participate, to have participation, that word is, that definition is true of all of these. It's the most common way that we would understand fellowship. It, it, it is to participate in something. And that's, so that's the broadest definition. And it can be positive or it can be negative, right? You can participate in good things and you can participate in bad things. New Testament authors use it that way. You know, if you participate in class, then you listen and you answer a question. If you participate in a sport, then you wear the jersey and you stay engaged. If you're participating in a conversation, then, then you respond and you interact. If you participate in bullying, then you stood with the bullies, or maybe you added an insult of your own. Right? To participate means that you are taking part in it, quite simply. That's the broadest uh, meaning of the word that's true of all four of these. Now, what happens beyond that is the New Testament authors sort of get specific in the way in which we participate or what it is that we are participating in. And that's where these other three usages come from. So second most commonly, 
uh, the New Testament authors refer to ministry partnership, ministry fellowship. Uh, that will be uh, all three of these last ones are, are used in the book of Philippians. That's one of the reasons we chose that book, because it helps to paint the picture of the whole of, of uh, fellowship. So, uh, ministry partnership. That could be like what we share with, with our missionaries, right? We send them some finances and they're, they're doing the work of the ministry. It could also mean sort of what we share with one another, that we, we are co-laboring in the gospel together. That'll be described uh, in the first part of Philippians. It could also describe maybe more uh, explicitly the relationship that Pastor Matt and I share, our ministry partnership as we shepherd together. So there's different ways in which uh, this ministry partnership could be utilized or understood. Uh, the next one is the sharing of resources. That, interestingly, is the second most common way that the New Testament authors refer to partnership as. So it's sharing their resources. We'll see that in chapter 4 here at the end of Philippians. And, and Paul says that they shared things with him quite frequently. There were multiple times that they sent gifts to him. This is also described in the beginning of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, uh, when after the initiation of the early church, they, they fellowshiped with one another and they had all things in common. They shared that which they had and distributed it to those who had needs. And then, interestingly and very importantly for our study this morning, the most common way that the New Testament authors utilize koinonia, fellowship, is this fourth category in relationship, or, or it describes our relationship to God. Some way in which we, koinonia, we partner with the divine. We share something in common with Him, normally some, one of His aspects or, or attributes. We saw that in, in Timothy, that we share in the divine nature. There's koinonia, the, the sharing of His divine nature, which we described there was like we participate in life or or it, it's, it's a good thing, right? Even in the Gospels, our union with Jesus. This is one of the most foundational aspects of Christianity. It is our union, our fellowship with Christ. So those are the ways in which the author uses, uh, the New Testament authors use fellowship. And we'll, we'll see um, really all four of them, again, because the first one is, is broad, and is true of all the other three, right? You take part in gospel ministry. How? You take part by sharing resources. Or another, you take part in the divine nature, some, some aspect of God or in relationship to Him, okay? So, so participation is the primary idea. So, Philippians, what's going on in this book I think a brief review of Paul's relationship to the Philippian church is in order, and, and it'll help to provide basically a backdrop to the topic of fellowship because it is a key, it's a theme throughout this book. So Acts 16 is where you'd find the origin of the Philippian church. Paul has just embarked on his second missionary journey. He's parted ways with Barnabas, disagreeing over whether they should or should not take John Mark. And Paul says, no, we're not going to. And he chooses Silas instead. And Silas accompanies Paul on the journey. On the way, Paul meets and picks up Timothy. That's the beginning of their interaction together on the second missionary journey. So it was on this journey that the Holy Spirit didn't permit them to travel according to their plans, 
but instead sent them toward modern-day Greece to a Roman colony called Philippi. It's an almost exclusively Gentile region, a place untouched by the gospel. And as one commentator says, in an instant came about one of the greatest turning points in history. Rome didn't know it, but the flag of Christianity was unfurled in the empire that day. So the Holy Spirit is sending Paul towards Gentile regions to spread the gospel. So, few Jews exist over there, that Paul, so Paul's unable to meet with them in the synagogue, so instead, as he, uh, which was normally his custom. So he did discover, though, a group of God-fearing women that were meeting uh, by a river outside. They were gathered for prayer. And so there he met a merchant woman named Lydia. You may remember her. And the text says that the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged them saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. It's like their fellowship has already begun. Come to my house and stay. And so they stayed. Her home became the meeting place for the Philippian church. Shortly afterward, that, shortly following that, there was a, a sort of unique series of situations that happened in the public square, and, and Paul and Silas find themselves violently beaten and thrown into prison, and that sets up for us one of the most dramatic accounts in the book of Acts, probably also one of the most familiar, as the bruised and bleeding duo sing hymns to God in the middle of the night. Just before an earthquake comes, a targeted earthquake and it frees them from their bonds. The Philippian jailer then rushes in and is prepared to take his own life, knowing that that would be the consequence for uh, prisoners escaping, and they tell him to stop. No, we're all present, we're all here, and he responds with this beautiful question, what must I do to be saved? And Paul, in beautiful gospel simplicity, answers, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And he does, and his household, and they're baptized. And so they go out of prison, and then they enter again the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. So a series of dramatic events was the beginning of the church in Philippi. A beautiful relationships blossomed out of these interactions, almost an entirely Gentile church, yet there is this unique closeness uh, that Paul shares with this assembly. And it comes through not only in this, in this letter, I mean, I mean, this is years later, and Paul is writing from imprisonment in Rome. So he is in chains. And the Philippian church had heard of his distress, and they sent a man named Epaphras, and They sent him with gifts to encourage Paul. They were fellowshipping with him even from a distance. And Paphras nearly died in this process of getting these gifts to Paul and encouraging him. And so now with Paphras recovered, Paul sends him back to the beloved family in Philippi with this warm and this emotionally intense letter. It begins, I thank my God. Every time I think of you, upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine making request for you all with joy because of your koinonia 
in the gospel from the first day until now. Let's pray before we dive into the text here. Father, I ask for your blessing upon this time. I ask for clarity in this explanation. I ask that your people uh, would be availing themselves of the means of growth this morning. Because you have something to say. This is your designed mechanism to distribute your word into their hearts. So I pray that their ears would be opened and that even despite things that may be distracting from me, I ask that the truth from your word would be clearly detailed. It would be impactful as we consider what it means to fellowship with you and to fellowship with one another. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Obviously, each of these four texts that we're looking at this morning could quite easily be at least one, if not more, sermons by themselves. So we're in a bit of a unique situation in that there will be a, a speed that we take this, these texts that we may not normally take them. Um, but I pray that it would still be faithful to what the text is saying. The primary punch of the text would hit us today. And then if there are, if you notice things as we walk through this, you're like, man, I, I didn't catch what that meant or that meant. That seems like it participates in the meaning and I, I didn't understand that. Write those things down and let's have discussion afterwards as well. Just know that this will be uh, a little bit more of an overview as we look at these four uh, texts of Scripture. So how does Paul engage this concept of fellowship in the letter to Philippi? And the first thing Write this down if you're a note taker. This is significant. That union or fellowship, participation, right? Union with God is the ground for all Christian fellowship. So that fourth category, right? That union with God is the foundation, is the ground for everything else that we share as believers. Without it, we have nothing. Without it, this gathering is nonsensical. Union with God is the grounds for our union together. So shared participation with God is the reason that we participate with one another. And we're going to begin in chapter 3. It might be a little counterintuitive, but this text really details that out. Chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. Now, what Paul's doing here is he's, he's describing two different things. The first one, uh, the, the verses immediately prior to this, he's just described his, the value of his religion prior to Christ. Okay, that he was circumcised on the eighth day, he was of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness which is in the law, blameless. So if anyone has something to boast about in their man-made religion, it's him. If anyone has something to boast about in their own personal righteousness, it's him. He did it all. He had it all. He was very successful in Judaism. But what he does in these first two verses, verses 7 and 8, is describe the spiritual emptiness that flowed out of all that personal righteousness. It was empty, seven and eight. All the things that were gained to me, I have counted loss. They don't, they mean nothing. And he uses some pretty strong language. He reiterates the loss and, and he calls them rubbish. He calls them garbage. They're, they're junk in comparison 
To what? To the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus his Lord. So when you pit those two things next to each other, then there is an inherent superiority to what Jesus has to say, to to the knowledge of Jesus. He echoes Isaiah 64, 6, saying, All of my righteous deeds were like filthy rags. And what he proceeds to do in verses 9, 10, and 11 is paint this beautiful picture of the gospel. For in, uh, in simple terms, not, not that Paul necessarily was thinking in these terms, but verse 9 describes justification, verse 10 describes sanctification, and verse 11 describes glorification. He's describing the gospel in its entirety and its effect on him personally in contrast to his old life as a Pharisee. And so beginning in verse 9 with justification, he proceeds to succinctly explain the superiority of Jesus' beautiful gospel to his attempt at righteousness through the law. He pits them against each other. Where does his righteousness come from? He's pursuing this gain in Christ and being found in him, not his own righteousness from the law, but here's what he's after, faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God by faith. So that righteousness is far better than what he pursued previously. <clears throat> the reality of the end of verse nine, uh, 8 and into verse 9, being found in him, found in Christ, there is the heartbeat of the gospel. Everything else is worthless. It is primarily about our relationship to him, being found in him, being united with him. And then uh, he moves to this uh, I, sanctification. So this that I may know, or that I may know, is an infinitive, and it takes upon itself three objects. He wants to know Him, Christ. He wants to know the power of Christ's resurrection and fellowship of Christ's sufferings. Those are the three things that Paul is knowing. Knowing Christ, knowing the power of Christ's resurrection, and knowing the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ. Being conformed in, those th- in the knowledge of those three things to his death. So here is then verse 8, the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ explained. How is it that the knowledge of Christ is more excellent? You see, because of our righteousness from Uh, from God by faith in Christ, we have been found, discovered as fellowshippers, partakers, participants in the person and the power and the pain of Jesus. Those three, Him, power, fellowship of sufferings, the person, the power, and the pain of Christ. It is in the gospel that we take part in the obedient life, in the sufficient substitutionary death, and in the powerful resurrection of Jesus. This reality was demonstrated, Christian, in your baptism. You confessed this very thing, that your life is now altogether shaped after His. 
We do well to remember then that Christ's life was not one of ease, but one of suffering. So our Christian pilgrimage as exiles is is characterized by struggle. It's characterized by conflict and suffering. We are being conformed to His death, which means that we not only have participated in the one-time redemptive historical death of Christ, but we also reenact this traumatic and hopeful experience in the waters of baptism. And while no suffering compares, we now also suffer after the pattern of Christ. Our participation in His pain pushes us toward a more pertinent perspective in our pilgrimage. He concludes his quick analysis of the gospel with a reflection on His glorification. Verse 11, Paul concludes this little gospel sermon with a statement of hope. The joyful end of fellowship with God is resurrection. And it is fellowship in eternal life. One commentator said, resurrection represents perfection at every level of existence. So it is mentioned here as the culmination of the spiritual pilgrimage. So as a Christian, what he's saying in 3, 7 through 11, Paul's union with Christ being found in him shaped everything. It entered him into a world previously undiscovered, a world of hope and a world of purpose, a world of direction. And that takes us to the next logical step in in Paul's progression here in Philippians. So let's go back to the beginning, that union with God, here's where, where we need to go next. So union with God produces a shared gospel mission. Union with God produces a shared gospel mission, which is fellowship. Our shared gospel mission is fellowship. So, it's, this, is, this is kind of a multi-directional thing, and, and each of these texts represents a little bit of a different direction. Uh, first, we see uh, Paul toward the Philippians, or that his joy is full toward them. He was, we see back in Acts 16, a lot of service poured out from Paul toward them, bringing the gospel to them, uh, pouring out time and energy and gospel ministry on their behalf. Right? He's participating toward them in gospel ministry. We'll also see in, uh, in chapter 2, one through four, that there's an interrelationship between the Philippians, the Philippians toward one another. There's this fellowship, there's unity, there's humility, and we'll see that next. And finally, we're going to see the perspective of the Philippians toward Paul. So in every direction, whether it's Paul towards them, them towards one another, or them towards Paul, there is participation, there is fellowship. So this first one, Paul towards the Philippians. This is his joyful service toward them because of their shared gospel mission. We've, we've read it twice already, so we won't read it again, but we'll just point out here, uh, because this is the reason. The fellowship in the gospel is the reason for Paul's joy. 
Every time he considers them, he's moved toward prayer. He's moved toward thanksgiving. And so kind of in the first half of this short text, three through eight, he describes, he states strongly his thanksgiving because they have also entered into this world of union with Christ that created, it forged a common bond and gives them a shared purpose. Their greatest desires were the same. And so they participated together toward that end, toward the end of the gospel. They had put their hand, the Philippians had, to the gospel plow, and they weren't looking back. Therefore, they were co-laboring with Paul as servants of God. That's why Paul overflowed with joy. They understood it, and they lived it. Therefore, they participated together in it. Paul was so confident uh, of them having been actually of them actually having gained this new life of God, having regenerated them, of having begun this work in them, based upon their interactions, based upon their time with in Lydia's home, based upon the fruit uh, in the Philippian jailer's life, based upon all these things, he was confident that God had begun a good work in them. And then, because of the character of God, he was confident that God would complete the work that He had begun in them, which is the very thing that He. He described in chapter 3 that they would also taste new life in Christ, uh, eternally so. They would taste resurrection together. So they're go- God's going to complete the good work that he began. Our fellowship in Christ is the promise of future life together. He started it upon our regeneration and he finishes it upon a resurrection so he says, therefore, right in verse 7, it's, it's right for me to think this way because you're with me, you're in my heart. What does that mean? How's, how are they in his heart? Well, in as much as in his chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, they were partakers with him of grace. They lived it alongside him. Now, from miles and miles away, Yes. From when they were together? Yes. In prayer? Yes. In many ways, they participated together with him. So he said, this word partakers is not the word koinonia, but the word koinonia is in the word fellowship. It's like a compound word that includes fellowship in it. And it communicates a similar idea, like that they were sharing. They shared in grace together. In his chains, and in the defense and the advance, the confirmation, the stand for the gospel, they stood together. It produced this warm longing. It produced them being in his heart. It produced fellowship. That's what it produced. Chapter 2 describes the humble unity that is also the product of our union with Christ. So if, if in Paul's relationship to the Philippians, it, it produced joyful service or demonstrated itself as joyful service. Now Paul, encourage, we're, we're taking a, a brief break in the relationship between Paul and the Philippians, and now Paul speaks about the Philippians' relationship to each other. 
So there is this humble unity that ought to exist. This section really begins in uh, chapter 1, verse 27. I will read that since we didn't read this before. He says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Paul has described just previously the tenacious togetherness through suffering that characterizes God's people. The two phrases, in one spirit and with one soul, now blossom in chapter 2 into this beautiful poem uh, describing the unity that necessarily flows out of our fellowship with the Spirit of God. The way that he does this in verses 1 through 4, this is one single sentence. It's, a, it's one grammatical unit. And you can see and hear We'll probably read through this one more time just to, so that you can, but you see it and you hear the apostles' kind of apostles rhythmic quality in the consistent short clauses here, in the parallelism. At the heart of the sentence is one singular imperative, fulfill my joy. That's the command. That sounds a little bit self-serving. Don't misunderstand. Paul's primary concern is not his personal fulfillment, but on the Philippian unity as described clearly by the myriad of, of subordinate clauses above and behind or above and below uh, this imperative, Paul, by their unity, will experience the byproduct of it will be the fullness of his joy. So let's read through this and, and then we'll break it down. Verse one. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, any comfort from love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy. By being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interest of others. So this is a beautiful poem. We're going to start in the middle of verse 2, because that describes the spiritual oneness right there. And there's four phrases uh, being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. It's an A, B, B, A. The one-mindedness is in, is in the A's, and then this love and, and warmness is in the B. Okay? So A, B, B, A. Be like-minded, have the same love. This is not intellectual uniformity. This is not that we all think the same things, but this is spiritual oneness. Based upon what? based upon our union with God. So because of our union with God, that is why we might share one mind spiritually, and that's uh, where he's about to make that argument in, in verse 1. So we are to be like-minded. What is the quality of that like-mindedness? What is the quality of that oneness? And the answer is humility. Humility is essential for unity. Humility is essential for us to agree concerning one thing that's outside of ourselves. And so they agree with humility. He makes a negative statement, then a positive statement, then another negative statement, and a positive statement. Right? So negative, don't let anything be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but positively, lowliness, humility, esteem others better than yourself. Do not look out for your own interests, but positively look out for the interests of other people. So here's the poetry in this section, again, four phrases, a negative, a positive, a negative, a positive. 
The true obstacle to unity is not the presence of legitimate differences of opinion, but self-centeredness. That is the obstacle to unity. According to one commentator named Silva, that is our obstacle. Paul, in verse 1, described the ground of this unity. It's the argument that we've already sought to make in the sermon, and it's demonstrated once again here. These are not four rational, theological, distinctive arguments, I don't believe, but an impassioned plea, an emotional plea from Paul toward unity. Based upon your shared relationship with God, if there's any consolation in Christ, if, he, if He's brought together you in any way, if there's any comfort in love, if you have koinonia with the very Spirit of the living God, if He's in you and in you and in you and in you, if He's in all of us, if there's any affection, even just a, a little affection, if there's mercy, these qualities will demonstrate themselves by being like-minded. That is the ground. That is the reason for humble unity, is our fellowship in the Spirit of God. Does your union with God exist? Then our union with one another ought to exist as well. This putting off of self is one of the first evidences of Christ-likeness. It's what he did first. <laughs> it doesn't take much to defer. You might disagree with that. I don't know. It doesn't take too much to defer, to let someone have their way. But it takes a bit more to defer with joy and to defer without gossip or to defer without slandering the person to whom you have deferred, even internally in our own, in our own minds. But the concept is simple enough, isn't it? We would do this because of that. Members of the Christian family are not consumed with themselves, but we have our gaze fixed upon other people because our gaze ultimately is fixed upon Christ. This is a natural response to the gospel and is contrary to the idea of our world, even um, to, to quote <laughs> Frank Sinatra, for what is a man? What has he got if not himself? then he has not to say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels. The record shows I took the blows and did it my way. A little bit different than the Apostle Paul. Great singer, but a little bit different than the Apostle Paul. No, I didn't do it my way. My way has nothing to do with this. My way is absolutely irrelevant. First, we're concerned with his way, and then I'm concerned with your way, and then maybe I'll think about my way. <laughs> There's a priority here. Let's return to the concept of the Philippian uh, and Pauline relationship, because there is a response, a natural outflowing of these internal realities, right? To say, I'm united with God, therefore I'm united with you, is beautiful and it's true. What does it look like? How does it sort of take its feet and walk? Where does it move? And this is one of the examples of that. 
Paul says, nevertheless, you have done well that you shared. That's not koinonia, but it's that same word he used earlier that has koinonia in it, right? They shared in my distress. And it's interesting. How can you share in the distress of a brother? How can you fellowship in the pain of one of your partners in Christ? Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed, no church fellowshiped with me except for you, you only. How do they do that? Well, verse 15, 16. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. That is the description of their sharing. Not that I seek the gift, so it's a gift, physical thing, but he seeks the fruit that abounds to their account. So what's happened here? is that this is the other half of the coin. Not only did Paul participate uh, in Christ with the Philippians, preaching, service, etc., other things that he served them with, the Philippians participated with him. Paul goes so far as to say that they shared with him in his distress. So just as, follow me here, just as we are made participants in the suffering of Christ, chapter 3, so now we have the opportunity to participate with each other in the suffering that has flowed from our association with Christ. So now we share with each other, not just with Christ, in the suffering that's the fruit of our relationship with Him. Right? This means something more than experiencing the same thing, doesn't it? They weren't experiencing what Paul experienced. We haven't all had the health problems that individuals have had. We haven't all experienced, tasted the same life realities, and that can cause a variety of emotions toward one another, can't it? But the idea is that it's something beyond actual uh, experiences toward, like, like they're not in jail, they didn't suffer ship, shipwreck or anything like that, but there's another way that they can participate, and that's what this is describing. They were characterized by their quick desire to aid in the gospel mission, particularly in response to Paul's joyful service to, to them. This, is, this letter is the result of a gift. It's a thank you note, in many ways, for the gift that they sent. Money, stuff, maybe as he requested other times, maybe some clothes, maybe some books, maybe some things, some things that Epaphras was able to take. And so he arrived with a gift, a fellowship, That was the concrete evidence of their fellowship with Paul, is their selfless generosity. That would be the third category. So if we have a joyful service from Paul to them, humble unity from them to each other, now selfless generosity from the Philippians to Paul. And it's described with this giving and receiving, right? It's a, it's a financial term. If they gave and they received. It's helpful to us this whole thing is because it kind of puts physicality to an immaterial concept. We run the risk when we do that, right? So giving and receiving, okay, so that's what it is. Then we can exchange sometimes the physical demonstration for the greater meaning. And that, I think, going all the way back to the beginning, is in part what's happened in the Christianese. We've exchanged some of the, the demonstration, maybe some of the fruit of fellowship. It's like 
partnership. It's togetherness. There's a meal, something that we share in common. But that's not the fullness of fellowship. That's maybe one visible, like a small piece of the pie, right, of the visible demonstration of the greater reality. But this is helpful because it helps us to see it, right? It helps us to point out, there it is, there it is, because they gave something to him. Now, it's, it's fascinating what he does at the end here uh, because there is this sort of theology of the gift, and the gift is the fellowship. So there's this theology of fellowship in, in verses uh, six, 17, 18, 19, 20. First, Paul's not after the gift, right? He's grateful for it. It's greatly helped him, but he's not after it. He didn't seek the gift, but he sought the fruit that abounds to their account. So there was this fruit from uh, toward the Philippians by God based upon their generosity toward Paul. So it produces something in the life of the giver. It's also a fragrant and aromatic sacrifice that pleases God. All right, so Paul says, Whoa, enough. I'm stuffed. I'm full, right? I have all and I abound. I'm full. Having received from Epaphroditus, I've been saying Epaphras this whole time, Epaphroditus, the thing sent from you. All right, so no, I'm not trying to say this to say, okay, send me some more. So this is great. I love your fellowship. Send me some more. No, he's saying, I'm good. I'm full. Thank you so much. I, I love you. My heart is full to overflowing. Be unified, please, in Christ. Right? I have everything I need. And what does he say? That having received from Epaphroditus, the things sent from you. So the stuff was a sweet-smelling aroma to God. It was an acceptable sacrifice. It was well-pleasing to him. The stuff was worship. That's beautiful. That's helpful. We have a little bit of stuff, don't we? <laughs> so that maybe gives us some direction as far as uh, our, uh, what does fellowshipping sort of look like? And he says then it's also an expression of trust in verse 19. Right? They've just given, given, given. And he says with warmth and fullness, he says, and my God will supply all of your needs. That's coming from the guy who just got a big gift. It's like, don't worry, you'll be full too. Right? If they didn't have this warm relationship, that could sound a little sassy, couldn't it? <laughs> like, Thank you. May the Lord bless and keep you as well. Here's your guy back with a note I wrote, you know? So he's, he, he really is demonstrating the, the fullness of their, of their mission. Their common mission is described here. And their trust in God, their union. God's going to supply all their needs. The Philippians believe that, and Paul believes it as well. Why would God do that? According to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. According to his stuff, the stuff that he gives us in Christ, participation in his divine nature, eternal life, resurrection, forgiveness, all these beautiful things, he'll supply their need. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Beautiful, just accumulation based upon fellowship. Paul took the gospel. They received the gospel. Lydia opened her home. They went into her home. The Philippian jailer asked a question. Paul answered a question. They went and were baptized, demonstrating their now common bond in Christ. 
They heard Paul needed some things later on. They sent him a gift once. They sent him a gift twice. They sent their people. They sent all this stuff. Paul responds, joyful, gratitude, right? It's just this joyful relationship based upon their relationship with Christ. That's where it comes from. So how do we sort of put this into practice? I want to take a, a minute or two to say one thing, one, an aside, and then we'll just bring it to application in, in our church life. So this concept of fellowship ne- right next to friendship. What, what are these two things? How do they relate to each other? If our common, common uh, relationship with Christ creates a common relationship with the other, uh, each other, is that the same thing as friendship? Maybe. But I would encourage you that it's, we share something far beyond friendship, far deeper than even enjoying relationship with each other. See, the, the household of, of God is not primarily concerned with liking each other. That's not primarily what we're about. Right? That's one of the fruits, love, warm love, that, that even the world sees and identifies as different. Just... <coughs> Having friends is, is not really what we're here to do. We're here to we're gather to celebrate. We gather to demonstrate our union to the God-man who was stripped of every physical comfort, who had no friend, who drank the cup of suffering and pain and wrath down to the dregs out of love for us. So we share something much deeper. When I look out this morning, even as your shepherd, I don't see friends. You are. Many of you are, but I see something far greater. You are my eternal family. Right? We are connected in Christ, and, and even beyond that, we're connected locally. You know, we've, made, we've made promises to one another. We've sworn that, we're, that, this is, that we do believe this, that I am in Him, and we all are together in Him. We're going to walk towards this common mission. We're going to do Philippians 1.3. We're going to co-labor that's what we're here. That's what I see, who I see. As an aside, that's one of the reasons that membership is so beautiful and important, is that it enables us to see that, to identify the who's of that gospel partnership. So approaching the family of faith with kind of this requirement of receiving uh, stuff, even friendship being one of those things, those food, time, finances, friends, is the incorrect disposition but something that's very common, very common, and something that I think we all long for as well, uh, and very well may take place, but it's just not, the, not our primary point here. So fellowship, then, is a spiritual reality that must be expressed physically. So how do we take part? How do we fellowship as a local family in our shared gospel mission? Just a few practical notes, and we'll be done. One, being here participation. <laughs> your presence here is fellowship because we're here for our common mission. We're here in Christ together. So fellowshipping together, being here, preaching, that's fellowshipping. It was from Paul to the Philippians, right? He gave them something, an eternal truth that, was in, that he inherited and he passed along. That's what's happening even now. I'm fellowshipping with you, giving something. So here we also commonly examine our union with God, don't we? And if that's the grounds of our fellowship with another, then preaching would often motivate warmth towards the family of faith. Praying, 
wow, some of these other means of grace just keep coming up, don't they? Right? Prayer, there's fellowship, there's participation, even in one another's sufferings. Right? Praying for you and praying for him and her, those are, that is fellowshipping together, 